Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. This week we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 7, Ascent, directed by Gwyneth Horder-Payton and written as ever by Tom Rob Smith. After our episode breakdown, we will have a massive long discussion between Richard and series star Darren Chris, where, among other things, Darren dropped some scoops on what was cut from the show, including Skeet Ulrich as a porn king. So yeah, you'll want to stay tuned for that. But before we get to both our recap and the discussion, Richard, I wanted to get your broader take on Ascent, which I think wasn't your favorite installment of the series. Yeah, I mean, it has its moments. I mean, look, Penelope Cruz is wonderful in this role, and it's fun to see her. Um, And the episode, you know, obviously, the centerpiece is still Andrew Kinnanen, but um, but she she gets a lot of focus too, which is fun. Um, but I'm just not sure how much her storyline um, about her, you know, taking the reins of Versace um, or the or, you know in the early stages of doing that uh, really aligns or has any sort of thematic rel- uh, you know resonance with Andrew's story. So I think that's a problem like structurally in the episode. Um, and then past that, I think a lot of the stuff with Cunin and the, the details that we learn, it feels a lot of it feels, you know, like imagined or I don't you you read the book. So you'll you'll be able to tell me what was actually accurate and what was an, an invention for the show. But um, I just kind of feel like we've understood 
each of these things about Cunan's personality that we see on display here, his greed, his greed and his status, envy and all this stuff. And I just feel like it's kind of just a rehash of that. Um, but I say that having watched the episode that will air next week, which clarifies him more. So I'm not sure if maybe a first time viewer is, uh, feels that like this episode is redundant in the same way I do. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, we're seeing a lot of scenes that we've heard about. You know, I'm thinking specifically of David and Andrew meeting. This is, this is, you know, and they're, and they're night together. Like, this is something that we've heard about so many times. So to finally see it, um, is interesting and can either play, as you say, like a retread of something we already know or revelatory. And I think it's hit and miss. I think some of the, the stuff with David and Andrew in that hotel, I think they did do a, jo- a good job of making that feel as magical and special, do you know, for Andrew as uh, we later find out it is. So, um, and, and like you make, you make an interesting point with the use of the Versace narrative in this episode. Um, I guess, you know, you could say this is the ascent of Andrew into his, you know, power player position and the ascent of Donatella into a similar position. Um, but, Trying to make the connection feels a little labored. That being said, I was really happy to have the Versace stuff because I think, um, as you already said, that Penelope and Edgar and, um, and Ricky are, are also really good in those roles that I miss them when they're gone. And so I, I, I guess I spent this episode wondering what it would have been like if they had found a better way the whole season to work in more of the Versace every week. Yeah, there's a part of me that and I don't want to infer anything about Tom Rob Smith, but uh, because that wouldn't be fair. But there's a sense that I'm like, I don't really know how interested the show actually is in the Versace stuff. You know, it feels like this nod to it because when we have to, it's there in the title. We got these two great actors, you know, who are some of the more famous people in the cast. Uh, Well, certainly one of them is the most famous person in the cast. Um, You know, like uh, we, we have to, you know, kind of cram this in a little bit. And it just feels kind of perfunctory in a way sometimes, despite the great performances. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Gwyneth Horter-Payton, who directed this episode, spoke to us last week on the podcast because she also did uh, episode six, Descent. And and when she was talking to us about that, she mentioned the way in which this season was scripted. (laughs) Um, And I've heard this on basically every single Ryan Murphy show, which is that there are scripts well in advance for the first two episodes of the season. And then they all come like last minute. Uh, you're sort of rushing around if you're directing episodes later in the season. And, and Gwyneth Horter Payton has worked for Ryan Murphy a bunch of times. And she's like, this is just how it is. Everyone just rolls with the punches. But if like the, uh, you know, this is no commentary on like Tom Rob Smith's writing or anything like that, but I think it's just the way the production goes in this series. So um, if, episodes early in the season feel tighter and these feel a little looser. Um, that might be why, because everyone is just sort of like trying to make it work versus having a lot of time to plan things out. Um, yeah, that, 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 that tracks. Sometimes there's magic in the, just trying to put on a show Mickey and Judy style, but, uh, yeah. So, let us kick off this episode. We are going to Milan, Italy, and we see the Versace showroom, and I, I really do. I think this is even more so than the post-death performance Penelope gives. This is actually my favorite Penelope episode, even though I kind of agree with you about the way in which the Versace stuff mixes in. Um, 
her showing us a Donatella who is much more insecure, uh, I think is really interesting. It's not something that ever would have occurred to me to think of Donatella Versace this way. Um, but, but I really like that characterization and that journey that the, that the character takes over the course of the episode. Yeah, no, but, she's really good know. in it. And, and, yeah. you know, and I, and I like, I, it's interesting getting that because like, I feel like Donatella has existed in um, public consciousness as sort of this joke, like, you know, whether it's Maya Rudolph playing her on SNL or whatever, but to see this kind of more like human, almost sort of, origin story for her american fame is 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 it's really it's it's well handled it's humanely handled you know yeah um we see her trying to design a dress having this concept of the dress as a weapon um and then you know johnny and antonio come in and we see that everyone in the versace uh workroom there is um sort of gossiping about his health like it's a it's a unspoken secret once again we don't hear the word aids but that is like you know as we discussed in other episodes what is very likely going on here uh they talk around it um and basically we get to see donatella sort of grappling with this notion that she is going to figure out how to she's going to have to figure out how to do this without gianni they didn't they couldn't predict that he would be assassinated but they could have potentially had these conversations around his illness and what she's going to be able to do to carry on the house of Versace name. Um, and there's it, you know, it, there's this nice moment where Antonio basically stands up for Donatella in private with Johnny is like, I'm not afraid of you or your temper. You should go to apologize to her. And then there's just a really lovely brother sister scene um, where Edgar Ramirez and Penelope Cruz both just, really bring the vulnerability and it ends with her sort of like curled up in his lap, like little sister in his lap. And it's, um, as you say, like to contrast that with Maya Rudolph's SNL like, yeah. characterization, you know, like contra- that contrast is really, I think pretty stunning in the moment. Yeah. I like when he, um, he puts his head on the, the, man- the dress forms shoulder. Yeah, That's a cute little yeah. moment. Um, one thing I do want to say about these scenes is, um, the atelier set, you know, the Milan studio set, mm-hmm. it, it looks so much like a set, don't you think? And like that kind of bothers me. And you know what it reminds me of? I, I was like, I, I thought it was something from Charmed, which maybe it is, but it kind of reminds me of Angel's apartment on Buffy. <laughs> Like yeah. the, the high concrete walls, right? Am I cr- like I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. There's just something Absolutely. about it that feels like a soundstage. But um. But yeah. Anyway, you're right. That that little scene, that little nighttime scene, where they we really see them as you know intimate kind of caring siblings um uh is really great not entirely sure how it really i guess i guess this episode also is about andrew and his family but like i I don't know i think i really think the only thing that we can do to understand it is to think of this as donatella's ascent and like uh however neatly that works or not you know uh is up to the viewer but i i think that's sort of the theme that they're pacing together here but um it's funny that you mentioned that because I I actually was on that, you know, I was on that set. I went to um, you know, that that set, the workroom, the like library set and then the inside of the Versace house in Miami. And the inside of the Versace house in Miami is something that they recreated in insane painstaking detail. And then to go inside that other set, I just I just don't often go to TV sets, so I couldn't tell if like me having been at the set is what made it look so set-like to me, mm-hmm. but I'm glad to hear that you feel the same way about it and um I think it works really well at night. It's just during the daytime you've got those like um the fogged over glass and so it just never looks like they're at all in a building that's outside 
you know, it looks like they're inside. <laughs> yeah, of that stage. yeah. It 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 looks like a a play set in a way, but you know, you gotta yeah. you gotta cut corners. You have you they have a very a couple of very expensive items uh, in in those scenes in the form of Ricky Martin and Penelope Cruz. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, we paid for the Oscar winner, not the set. And yeah. that's fine. I prefer it that way. Okay, then we go over to a far less, um, you know, well-appointed setting, which is the pharmacy that Andrew Cunanan actually did work in in San Diego. He's basically like a stock boy. Uh, that There is some, like, Maureen North talks about in her book how this is, like, probably how Andrew got access to some drugs that he was maybe using to ingratiate himself with some people sometimes. Um, see him lying, you know, doing typical Andrew stuff, lying about a PhD, reading Vogue, talking back to his boss, taking all of his frustrations out on his mother. Uh, it's interesting to get this little rewind on his relationship with his mother, you know, which we'll see even more of. But last week, you know, we saw them both sort of at their uh, most unhinged, I would say, like, you know, Andrew on the verge of going on a murder spree and his and his mom having been abandoned by him is like sort of clutching at the straws of her own sanity. Um, and so to see them like a little a little healthier and whole, but still dysfunctional here is is interesting to me. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, it's sad. I mean, it's the whole this whole show is sad, but like this, this there's such a darkness to this part of his life um, and his mother's life. And we'll find out more about that next week. Um that you know again as we've said many times on on the show like watching the series like it gets progressively more empathetic toward this this killer um and while not exonerating him or, or letting him off the hook but i think this episode while a bit scattered um does that um you know the the next scene with him where he's at a bar with Jeff Trail um talking about various sort of body image issues sorry i'm now reading from your notes sorry i'm t- i'm taking over joanna um but that's okay <laughs> um and then when Jeff Le- and Andrew's like, well, who is who's going to be tonight? You know, because and we have this, you know, presumption that that Jeff has been, you know, sleeping around with a lot of people, which, hey, like, good for him, whatever. He's newly out of the closet um, or sort of semi out of the closet. Um, and then at the end of the night, he leaves with Jeff Trail leaves with this cute guy that Andrew had sort of singled out as like the ideal because he was like, I don't know, dressed like preppy or whatever. Uh, and, you know. I, I just could I could relate to that in a lot of ways. And, uh, yeah. you know, so as it's become progressively stranger to relate to this guy who would later kill all these people, um, you know, this episode does that well. Well, I think I think the that scene paired with, um, you know, I'll skip ahead to the scene where he goes uh, to the escort uh, service and tries to become, um, you know, a prostitute, basically, and uh, has to confront uh, once again, exactly what you're talking about in the bar, which is the the standard and the norms of, of what is appealing in the gay community at this time like she's like i can't sell she's like i can't (laughs) my clients rarely ask for asians and they never ask for asians with an attitude like you know she asks about andrew what his attributes are and he does like he is talented he has a lot to offer and she's like yeah that's not interesting to what my clients are interested in you know and um this is you know we we talked several weeks ago about the the way in which this show does and doesn't deal with Andrew's Asian identity. And this is sort of this scene, which I think you referenced at the time is like 
the first time the show is really engaging um, in Andrew's Filipino identity and how he's like, I can change my name. I can be Portuguese or Italian. Like I can do whatever if this is unattractive uh, to people. And yeah. um, I, I found it really touching and a really good scene. I mean, yeah, there's a lot on the show, uh, whether it's, uh, well, in this episode and next episode about racial identity, but also, you know, sexual identity about passing. And, and Andrew is mm-hmm. so obsessed with this idea of um of you know presenting a certain way in, in society and and he and he's close enough to it at times you know like that he could pretend to be italian or, or portuguese or whatever um you know that he could sort of you know mute his gayness to some extent or, or sort of talk around it but he never quite got there there was always this kind of bar to the entry to the to the the things he wanted um, it, it's interesting. And it is interesting that someone with that psychology at the same time was pursuing relationships with men. Like he was living at least that part of his life honestly. If, I mean, you know, he was honest about his sexual orientation. He was not honest really about anything else. But it's interesting that that was, um, you know, that he wasn't trying to pretend he was straight. Or in, in, Well, I guess he was in, in, in one scene we saw in the first episode, but like past that, no, I mean, he really was pursuing these things. So so his very complicated relationship with his identities, which he both sort of accepts and doesn't, um, I think is pretty fascinating. And this scene, while sort, sort of played comically, um, really gets at a lot of that stuff in an interesting way. It's uh, it's so interesting that you that you talk about that, about passing and... and... I think what what Maureen says in her book uh, is that Andrew was often noncommittal about his sexuality, which I think is what we saw in that. I think it was the sec- first or second episode, right, where he was talking to a friend of his first episode, yeah. um, where his friend's like, so are you gay or like what? And he's like, why why talk labels? And in this episode, too, you know, he he lies and says he was married to a woman, um, you know, and, and doesn't say like, and then I realized I was gay. Like, I think he gives off the impression of bisexuality, which like, um, whatever, but you're right. It is just like, it's more like flavor for whatever Andrew is cooking up, like whatever dish Andrew's serving that day. He's like, this is the identity I'm trying on right now, you know, but, it, but when, when you see how Andrew grew up and you see these scenes, like this escort service scene where he's told like who you are, like what are your attributes? And he doesn't lie in that scene. He says what his attributes are and they are like something of value. Yeah. And this woman's like, those are worthless. I need X, Y, Z. And Andrew's like, okay, well, I can do some of X, Y, and Z, but I can also shop a different market where my my attributes are worth something. But like, you know, Andrew being told that like his natural gifts are not enough, um, watching Jeff Trail go home with someone cuter, you know, like all of that is just uh, how we get to where we get. Well, I mean, uh, you know, and I think yeah. it could be cuter, or it could, frankly, be whiter. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. And I think, and I, and I think yeah. there's something interesting also about. Um, th- these couple scenes, like I think for for uh, gay people, uh, like or, or a lot of gay people anyway, um, realizing you're gay is, is the realization that you are going to be, de- you know, denied a certain narrative that you've seen your whole life prior to that. You know, um, a, a you know, sort of heteronormative, you know, get married, have kids, whatever. And, and so then when you come out, there's this great relief because then you can, you sort of, you sort of turn to your quote unquote community and it presents all of these sort of actual realistic possibilities for what your life could be. 
But then, of course, quickly or slowly or whatever, you realize, oh, wait, no, even within this community of people who have struggled with this, we've all had this shared story of struggling with this thing. But once you're past that, of course, there are hierarchies and prejudices and all that within the gay community. And I think that um, watching Andrew, you know, a big door closed behind him uh, just in the fact that he's gay and then finding all these other kind of things blocked for him i think it's it's painful because it, it is relatable yeah uh and then we get the less relatable storyline yeah. i mean i relate to this donatella thing because i relate to these ideas of like insecurity and feeling like uh you're not you're you're being thrust into a big pond and you're too small of a fish to survive um you know, and so we see Johnny and Donatella making this dress and she's like, it'd be perfect for Naomi, Naomi Campbell or whatever. And he's like, no, you have to wear it. And she's, I, once again, I agree with you that I'm not sure how well these two things knit together, but I, I love watching Johnny Versace as a brother. I think that's a really, um, yeah. lovely relationship to explore, um, and so we we sort of see um, we see them go to this gala in New York, the hundredth anniversary of Vogue. Um, you know, tying back, I guess, to the Vogue that Andrew's reading in in the pharmacy. Um, and we see Gianni, you know, encourage Donatella to go up the steps, take off her dress, and everyone's snapping photos of her. I was looking up some articles at the time to see like how this was covered, and like uh, later we see Donatella sort of reading from the style section of the New York Times. I did find a New York Times write up of the. Of this gala, but, uh, you know, it just said Gianni Versace with his sister Donatella Versace strapped into one of his dresses. It didn't, it wasn't like that whole poetic thing that she reads, but maybe that exists and I just couldn't find it yeah. uh, on the archives. But, um, one of our, our colleagues, Laura Bradley, did talk to a costume designer on the, on the show and, um, he talked about doing this dress and what an iconic Versace dress this is, this bondage dress and like the pressure that they felt to recreate it in a way that was like flattering to Penelope, but honored the original design um, and all of that. And I, I can't imagine for a costume designer, like the, the pressure of recreating a such a, I mean, I, I get, since I don't, I know so little about fashion, but my sense is this is like a game changing dress in the world of fashion. Um, and at least it was Donatella's coming out. So, you know. Yeah, I know. And it's a, it's a, it's fun moment. I mean, you know, it's like I would watch that whole series, you know, like about that world and with these people. Um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. I guess I do see like it's two people sort of trying to figure out how to, succeed in the world you know i guess there is that parallel but but anyway that regardless of of that you know the smoothness of that symmetry like um i do think it that again cruz is really excellent and that dress uh you know it is iconic i mean i went and like google image searched it and there you know there it is they did a really good job yeah it's interesting because do you do you think that the parallel they're trying to make is like gianni is encouraging donatella to be like who she is is authentically herself and that she is a leader like she doesn't have to pretend to be the leader of this house because she is a leader and she is strong and then andrew gets where he gets by putting on a million different masks is that the like english major 101 uh parallel that, that like i should go for or is that not quite the story they're telling i mean i think that is i think that i i i'm still not entirely sure how you know critical this show is or critically, the show is addressing um, 
money and cl- class disparity, I guess. You know, like I think that with the Jeff Trail episode where Tim, you know, coming out in sh- or in shadow on the news talking about being gay in the military, you know, compared to Versace having this much more welcoming sort of comfortable situation with the Advocate magazine article. Um, I think that's a, that was an interesting look at at the ways that um, people with money and power are sort of cushioned against some of the 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 the, 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 the tougher things in, in life, I guess, or it can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think in a way, I, 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 you could see this as it being like, yeah, Donatella had to struggle with this. It was a big deal for her. But also, like, look where she started. And then comparing it to Andrew, who, you know, he, he had to go to a, a, a cheap escort agency just to sort of actualize any sort of life that wasn't just working at this pharmacy and living with his kind of adult mother, you know, like, so it's just that the, the bars to entry are, are, are different. And I think maybe that's what the show is doing. But again, I'm not sure ultimately how critical the show is of the trappings of all that wealth or, if, you know, we're just supposed to kind of accept it as is. No, I think you're right. I think I think the show is at the very least trying to underline those the class disparity there or the opportunities, the differing opportunities. And like this is that's that's Andrew's whole thesis statement. And he might be right is sort of like with a few tweaks here and there, I could be you, Gianni Versace. And like, I, I mean, maybe that's like, you know, that's definitely some delusion of grandeur. But uh, it's true that with a few tweaks here or there, Andrew, who was very bright, uh, you know, could have at least had a very constructive future. His there's that the the contrast of familial support too. We get Johnny who pushes Donatella like the way that family should push you, and then also you know with with Antonio's advice like comforts her too. You know, and that that push and that comfort, which is so toxic in Andrew's life, um, feels so healthy and right in the in the yeah. you know house of Versace. So um and also like there, you know, something else to think about with this is that that the 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 Versace siblings are peddling a lifestyle, whether it's through their clothes or whatever the glamorous things are doing, or or for you know Johnny's big house in Miami with his hunky Italian husband, you know, um, like they're peddling a lifestyle that that Andrew wants, and and while sure some of that might be harmless, some of it isn't, you know, some of it is kind of setting up this um, unattainable fantasy lifestyle that can drive regular people to sort of desperate means i'm not saying that in, in any way that the versaces are responsible for andrew canaan but like but i think that it's is something to think about in terms of um what these really luxury brands and lifestyle stuff what kind of psychological effect they, they have on 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 the people that uh look up to them in a way yeah yeah wow that hadn't even occurred to me i think that's that's brilliant um you know, and so speaking of Andrew's sort of aspirational intentions, you know, we see him at the theater. He has picked his mark, who is Norman Blashford, who we met in last week's episode played by Michael Nouri. Um, he introduced, we see him introduce himself as Andrew De Silva for the first time, I believe. Um, and then we meet Lincoln Aston and, and this guy Gallo, who we met the, in last week's episode and they have a dinner and it's like, it becomes a sort of like bidding war over yeah. Andrew to a certain degree. And, and the character, the Lincoln Aston character who is based on a real person um, wins quote unquote. And he, you know, he has no pretensions about uh, who Andrew is. He offers him a hundred dollars a night. Andrew bargains, strikes a different bargain that involves an allowance and, and a role as 
um, sort of a like a I don't know. Party planner is so G-rated, but you know, like uh, connecting Lincoln with the gay scene in San Diego and bringing people to his house and, and yeah. stuff like that. And so. of course, this has parallels the theater scene with the episode, the, the scene, the first episode of the Opera House, where he we think this kind of imagined thing with him and Versace talking on the stage. Um, I do just want to note, I that is not what the La Jolla Playhouse looks like. <laughs> it's not. I don't think no. it's some grand old like opera house it's on the ucsd campus like it's more modern anyway it's just like a funny little thing i was like that can't possibly actually be the law I, re- <laughs> I rewound like three times to look for a chiron saying where else they were <laughs> i right. was like okay they're still in san diego if you say so yeah. um but yeah so the uh link so lincoln Asson's a real person um and he did actually get murdered in his home so we'll we'll get to all of that but uh that you know, this is something that Andrew did. Like, this isn't fantasy. Andrew went out. I mean, maybe not at a theater, maybe not at a well-appointed uh, fantasy version of La Jolla Playhouse, but he did actually go out and like connect with these these wealthy older men, and it was you know uh, his ascent into a different um, socioeconomic sphere. But a very uh, tenuous we'll, one, as, as we'll see. Yes. Yeah. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't know what to do with it. Um, we we swing back to Milan really quickly, where Donatella sort of gets a standing ovation. I just thought, I don't know. Once again, Penelope so great. Uh, Donatella sort of argues that they should have one one design for the runway, one design for the stores. Johnny loses his creative mind over this. He's like, "No, you're compromising your vision for commercial gain. I don't like this." And then he has a physical breakdown where he can't hear. Um, and he's panicking and Donatella's panicking and Antonio's panicking. And so it's, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because like we've already seen this illness. This isn't like the first time we've seen him ill. So it's, it doesn't have like a shock value to it necessarily, but it is still very well performed. This is, this is one of those places where it feels slightly like a retread of something we've already seen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, we get it. You know, I think that, and also like, I, I don't, I don't really particularly care at this point about the nuances of like the fashion business in terms of like what's sellable and what's, what's, you know, what's couture and what's on the runway versus what's in stores, you know, like, okay, sure. If the whole show was that, if it was, this was a fashion world kind of, you know, narrative. Okay. But I just, yeah, it felt a little bit like, yeah, let's get, let's cut, let's get back to Andrew, you know? Yeah, um, which might be the first time you said that, but um, yeah. the uh, <laughs> the I don't know this idea of like don't compromise your artistic ideals to satisfy it to become to make yourself pleasing in a way that people will want to buy. Sure. Um, you know, once again, I guess we could find some Andrew parallels there. Speaking of making yourself. Yeah. Look like an attractive package that someone would want to buy. Uh, Andrew's back in San Francisco, hanging out with his friends. This is the long-awaited meet not cute between David and Andrew um, where like Andrew is overtly saying like, you know, he suddenly has all this money to throw around. We have already heard David talk about his impression of Andrew when he first met him in another episode. But, you know, Andrew says this thing to his friends, like, who do you imagine they think we are? Who do you imagine people in this bar think I am? Look at this. Like I have made myself so quickly into uh, such a, such a, you know, a commodity worth buying. Look at, look at me. Um, and 
you know, the, I didn't catch this the first time, but like this repeat repetition from Andrew throughout this episode where he talks about um, how he has more success with older men than he does with men his own age. And we see him like go home alone when Jeff goes home with a cute blonde guy, stuff like that. For him to pick up his own cute blonde guy who is his age, um, I, I miss like the, the real, real uh, significance of that for Andrew. Um, that not just like, not just is David a catch, which he is, but like, this is Andrew finding a way to succeed at something we saw him fail at earlier in the episode. But like, he, the, the thing is like, he is succeeding because he wanted to be the slickster in a fancy restaurant who sends someone a drink and then has them up to his fancy hotel room and then they have sex and then what, and then whatever that all did work. Except the tragedy is like, I mean, of many tragedies is that it didn't work in the way he thought it did. He thought that David Madsen was seeing this life and being like, Oh, I want this. I'm going to sign up for the, with this person forever. Whereas we found out last week that it was just a lark for him. It was just a, it was, it was a novelty. He was curious about it. I mean, he, he wasn't mean. He didn't like dislike Andrew, but you know, like he said, like I, I hadn't traveled much, like whatever. And so you just kind of see it in a much different context where, um, nothing about it seemed like realistic in an everyday sense for David because it, isn't for most people but but andrew i think thinks that he's won him over and then this is it like this is how you get people by you know by kind of by lying to them or sort of presenting this 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 thing um which is sad it just it's just sad seeing like oh they were out of step from the very beginning like there was never actually a point of 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 sort of agree agreement really or or parody in terms of the way that they they interacted with each other that's interesting because like that wasn't my that wasn't my interpretation of at least their first meeting like you're right when David says that in uh, episode six descent he's like I hadn't traveled much like I feel like that's why David sort of keeps engaging with Andrew yeah. but this first interaction I feel like David you know you can't get to know someone um beyond really beyond surface level the first time you meet them so i think andrew i think david is like intrigued by sees potential there and then quickly is like there's something off about andrew that like i can't put my finger on it but i will go along with it longer than i should have because i haven't traveled much and i would like to see it does that no i think that makes sense sense? i mean because he does go to the party like later the birthday party but like i just think that like but i think that even in that way a curiosity about someone who is showing you something kind of interesting and weird and maybe bullshit. And, but you know, like, like, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. But I think that Andrew thinks that this is the beginning of a, of a love affair, you know, of a great romance. And I don't think it ever was going to be that for, for David, no no matter what, you know, because um, at least in the way that the character is drawn on the show, like, because I just don't think that that sort of fantasy, that novelty, that sort of amused curiosity, I, that's not really a romantic feeling. It can be a sexy feeling, but but it's I don't know if it's love, you know, ever. Um, you're right. Maybe and I'm that, wrong, but that, no, no, no. I think you're right about that, and that goes back to that line we were talking about um, last week, where he was like, uh, "I, you know, I get the sense you don't have many great nights. This is a great night for David." Yeah. And Andrew is like, uh, "Also, we're gonna get married and have kids and have, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Andrew's already just like miles ahead because he's so inexperienced and love starved, you know. And so I, I just feel, I feel a tremendous amount of uh, sympathy for that. But um, you know, and then you find yourself sympathizing with Andrew Kinnan, and you're like, "What has the show done to me?" Right. Um, 
And we, you know, it's important to remember that in that scene, we see David tell this story about wanting to build a dream house for, um, you know, a, a hurt and upset friend of his. And we see Andrew tell, like, tell that story as if it were himself later on in the episode. Uh, but this idea of building dream houses uh, is one that I think has sort of resonated throughout um, the series, obviously. Um but back in the real world, Andrew gets cut off by Lincoln because Lincoln gets an itemized bill for the hotel. Oops. And sees what Andrew has been spending uh, his allowance on. Um, so Lincoln goes out to the bar and picks up a hustler uh, who and takes him back to his house. Uh, and we should know that this is the same house that we saw in episode six. Uh, and uh, this this guy ends up killing Lincoln and Andrew witnesses it and then Andrew sort of like talks his way out of getting murdered himself um and you know I I would I would say not I didn't need the follow-up scene where like they're like basically he's citing gay panic as the reason why he killed this guy um that's very clear in the scene that we that we have here this happened um yeah. Lincoln Aston was murdered in his home by uh, a young man who later confessed there is no evidence that Andrew was there uh, that night. So um, that is something that the show invented. But, it, you know, I said last uh, last week when we talked that when, when Andrew goes back to the house where Norman's there and Andrew's like banging on all the glasses and he's high out of his mind because I'd seen that episode after I'd read the book. But before I had seen this episode, I was worried that they were going to have like Andrew killed Norman the way that this mm -hmm. this guy killed Lincoln. They're not deviating that far off reality, but putting Andrew in that house does draw a line of like, this is going to be close to being you one episode from now. And also like in not not that gay panic is a motivation, though, you could argue partially, but like at the end of your rope, like you you feel like you're so high, right? Like high, um, you climb so high right now, but you are going to be right back down there next week, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, yeah. Um, and then we get this sort of on the nose scene, I would say, where um, Andrew and Norman are talking. They're they're in I don't know back in La Jolla Playhouse or some other theater where they're talking about um, the injustice of what happened to Lincoln. That Kevin, the murderer, like you know uh, what what did they say? Like he lacked the discipline to leave or something like that. Uh, and Andrew says something like, "They can rob us, beat us, kill us. It's our fault. They get away with it." And the reason I think this is here is to lay seeds for what we've already seen, which is Andrew exploiting that, gaming um, the way in which the legal authorities respond to gay-on-gay um, -gay crime, I guess is what I would say, um, versus how how they would respond otherwise. And, and like – it's just so interesting because reading Maureen's book, I it didn't occur to me that Andrew was like intentionally exploiting that, but the show is definitely well, making that case. You 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 in a way. I mean, I think his his anger at Lee Miglin is very complicated, but like you understand why he put all the porn around because maybe he thought that would kind of diminish the right. crime and give him a little more time. You know and why he pulled out all the all the porn in, uh, in David's yeah, house? Yeah, like no, I think yeah, that's totally exactly. true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we see Andrew and Norman walking on the beach and Andrew tells David's stories if it's his own story. Um, and then we get this really uh, sad scene with Andrew leaving his house, telling his mom, 
Yeah, basically, I mean, it, it is insane, and this actually happened, that Andrew convinced Norman to move into his murdered friend's house and set up a new house there. That did happen. They live in the same house. That's, That's wild. Yes. Um, and then we see Andrew pack up and leave his mom and, and lie to her and say he's going to go travel the world with Versace. Something that I noticed is that the Andrew doesn't have a murder wall in his home with his mother. He has just a bunch of locations, like a bunch of places he wants to go mm-hmm. um, that he's like torn out of magazines and put on the wall, which I think is like a, a nice little set dressing parallel. Um, Andrew's mom asks if she can come. He gets mad. He throws her against the wall. He fractures her shoulder. He takes her to the doctor and she lies for Andrew. Um, what did you think of this scene between mother and son? Yeah, I mean, I like this this scene. I mean, I mean like is hard. I don't mean like him because it's really hard to watch. But but uh, Joanna Adler, who plays Andrew's mom, is really great in this very sort of sad, trembly way, you know, um, kind of tightly wound. Um, and I think it's a good window into um, Andrew's selfishness. I mean, we've had that many times prior in the show but i think that like you know there seemed to me okay maybe at least he has this redeeming thing and that he's good to his mother i mean we, we, we i think men who do bad things get talked about in, in those terms a lot like well he was good to his mother you know um and he's not good to her he's <laughs> yeah. he lies to her yeah. he's abusive of her both physically and and emotionally i mean the thing with the ice cream in an earlier scene is just devastating to me anytime someone like drops their groceries or whatever i just always find that so sad and she then she like scrapes it up off the floor and puts it in a bowl i just think the whole relationship is depicted in a really like um, devastating way, um, and Joanna Adler is great in it, and um, we'll get more of that next week. Um, I think it can seem this whole thing can seem a little bit like I don't know, like okay, like could things have been that melodramatically bad? And it's like, well, we'll find out how they got there and why they got there. Um, so I think it's good table setting for that. Yeah. Um, we get we go back to donatella briefly before we end the episode where she tells the staff that johnny has ear cancer which is sort of what the 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 public facing diagnosis for johnny was um and basically says that she's going to be in charge once again like penelope giving a lot of layers of performance here her her fear her like sadness over her brother you know she says a thing like you know don't forget that he's a fighter and all this he's stuff. stubborn he's stubborn it's about really, life i think that's yeah. it yeah yeah it's really effective mm-hmm. but um uh, as you say maybe just not like maybe just needed like one more pass to knit it knit it together more smoothly um yeah and then the last scene is Norman and Andrew in, in the empty house where Lincoln died <laughs> um designing it and Andrew's saying, if they could see me now, and Norman says, who? And Andrew says, everyone. Which I think is a little on the nose. Um, I will say to, I don't know if the show's credit or discredit, but like, this is one of the many scenes in this show of Andrew standing and regarding the view, except this time he's wearing clothes, you know? I think I think they yeah. could have, they could have tweaked that, um, <laughs> but so a, a little a little detail I do love from this scene is we see mm. the movers putting the glass table out on the deck, um, which we just saw him shatter in the episode previous, oh, and it's just this nice. nice little visual reminder of like oh yeah this is all fragile and it's going to break very soon for him like so this triumphant yes. moment right behind him is a symbol of the fact that it's not it's not going to last. That's funny that you remember you remembered the scene from Descent where he's naked. I was remembering the scene uh, in the hotel when David comes. To oh, that's right. Standing out on the he is wearing clothes. Too. Yeah, yeah. He is wearing clothes there, but it's sort of like that is 
he is surveying something, an empire that definitely doesn't belong to him. Here it does almost, like kind of. He He's supposed to be there. Like he's invited. Yeah. He's supposed to be there. Versus like I've maxed out a credit card to be here and you're watching him survey the view and you just feel so uncomfortable. Here you're like, no, he like this is... At least for now, this in, is where he's in in a be. perverse sense, in the in the sense that he ever does anything, he like earned it, sort of. Like, I mean, he doesn't really earn anything in this, you know. But like by his sort of standards, um, he earned it. But like that table be- behind him, it's not not long for the world. <gasps> like that table behind him, it's all gonna smash. Um, all right. So next week we are going to be talking about the episode Creator Destroyer, which you and I have, I think. It's either tied for our favorite or, or at least it's in a close second to House by the Lake. Uh, it clarifies there, so much about... It really does. ...about Andrew's motivation or, or at least this show's theory about his motivation um, in a way that I found like really satisfying. And it's like hard to have a show that works backwards like this have a, a payoff like that. And yet I, I think it does. Now the moment you've all been waiting for, I'm sure. We have a long discussion between Richard and series star Darren Chris. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I'm here with Darren Chris. Finally, I made it at long last. Yes, we've been talking about you so much these past few weeks that like it's just funny to have you sitting here. Now. And and I'll share this with you. I, I sent an email to you uh, a couple days ago uh, in regards to coming on the show because I've been listening to it since the beginning, at least when the first one came out. Because I was really curious to see what Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair's take was on this, considering its involvement with the, I guess, almost the genesis of the, at least the the journalistic side of, you know, of of the show, which is, you know, which what we're obviously based off of. Um, But then I think around by the time the second or the third episode came out, I had been on such a huge press tour that I just found myself only consuming and interacting with media that involved the show and myself. And I was like, you know, I'm, I I don't like yeah. involving myself with myself this much. This is strange and unhealthy. So I haven't listened to it since about 
I think, I think the second episode. So you'll have to fill me in on what I've missed. Well, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to, t- there's been so much to talk about. And, um, you know, it's such a densely, I mean, there's so many big kind of urgent political themes. I mean, we're talking about gay stuff and class and race stuff and all this. I'm curious, like when you, at the onset of all this, faced with this big, I mean, it's a huge role both thematically but also just you're in every episode and like you know the kind of centerpiece of a lot of episodes most episodes what's the most frightening thing about sort of contemplating climbing that mountain actually this is sort of tied to this podcast is um we've only just uh, gotten to know you a little bit but uh i'm a pretty talkative dude and i enjoy really digging my mental claws into things and sort of unpacking and analyzing and discussing and like you said, there's so much to talk about with this show. It's it's really hard. I mean, there's so, and we'll get into this later, but there's so much that is not in the show. Stuff that wasn't written to the show, but stuff that was written to the show that got cut. I mean, there's a significant amount of stuff that's just not there anymore. Um, I think it was really daunting to me knowing that I'm going to be put in a position where I'm going to have to talk about this a lot, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have to be very terse. Uh, this is something that's really exciting because podcasts, you have the the breadth of space to, to really, like I said, unpack some, some, some things. Whereas you go on talk shows and it's, you know, your quick four minute thing. And they ask these very complex questions about very profound things or things that have a lot of emotional weight to it. And I have to give my like late night show answer sure. that sort of doesn't do any of it justice. And being a um, stickler for clarity, specificity, articulation it's not the best venue for really giving a good answer on on certain uh, on certain issues and certain questions. So I think I guess whatever fears I had was more just uh, not fears, but just trepidation of the inevitable me having to cut this stuff short. So this right. all comes right. full circle to being very happy that I'm on this show and being oh, able good. to talk about stuff in a more uh, sophisticated way. What familiarity did you have with all of this before you know reading the scripts and? And doing that, so. I had about as much as I think most most people did. Yeah, um, and I say most people with the most general, broadest sense of including everybody I can think of. I mean, I I grew up in a metropolitan environment uh, around a certain amount of people that would have known about Versace's murder. Right. That's about it. And I think I vaguely remembered in the recesses of my brain that the murderer was half Filipino, which would have been a point of interest to me as a half Filipino kid. But that's about it. I mean, um, you know, we you know we live in these coastal cities that, and you obviously work in, in media and in, in, in the fashion world, and you work in a building that is the very nexus of of, of stuff. But uh, you know, we're not a lot of the people watching this show. I mean, people have come up to me saying, "I didn't even know Versace was killed." Oh wow! <laughs> uh, so there, you know, it, it sort of runs the gamut as far as what people know. So I think I, I was the most broad, which was uh, I, I, I knew that there was a murder on the steps of his house, and that is basically it. Um, when you really start diving into uh, Maureen's work or just stuff that it wasn't even a part of her work that is that is public information, um, it's. It it blows your mind because most of it you go wait how did I not know this? Um, this is too fascinating, and I think the superlative of of Marine's book, the the largest failed manhunt in FBI history, like well that's quite a superlative. Like how do we not yeah. know about this? Uh, and 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 the answer to that is sort of what we uh, explore in the show. The, and the uh, what allowed this to be not known about is sort of 
the the American crime, so to speak, in, right. in and of itself. So, um, yeah, I, I, I to answer your question again, I, I seem to be a little <laughs> long winded, but um, yeah, I didn't I didn't know very much, yeah. I, and I remember uh, when Brian Murphy and I talked about this like three some odd years ago. Um, you know, you just look up Andrew Cunanan and, and, and you're just looking at the most sort of uh, the, the easiest things to access on the internet without diving too hard down the wormhole. You, you see all the stuff that's right in front of you that you, it's just, you, I, I couldn't believe it. And I remember thinking, God, I don't want to have to dive into this unless Ryan really wants to do this. Right. Uh, so how deep do you, I mean, how, is it helpful to go as deep as possible? Cause I've talked to some actors who they're like, no, I don't want to do like an imitation. I don't want to be, you know, kind of tainted by that stuff. I just want to kind of create my own thing. I mean, yes and no. I, I think everyone's a little different. I don't think there's any rule book as to how to do something. I think at the end of the day, your guiding light is, is the script, um, which, which is, uh, you know, on the one hand, I can go, well, that's a cop out, Darren, from ever from admitting that you didn't do as much homework as you may have needed to. Or you can also say that, you know, I, I think it's there's a lot of validity to that. And in, in that the the line that I keep telling people is there's a few different Andrew Cunanans we're dealing with here. I mean, there's the Andrew that that walked and talked and roamed this earth. Mm-hmm. There's the Andrew that we can kind of glean from Maureen, from Maureen's book, which already is sort of pretty layered considering that it's third first fourth hand accounts from people which were already varying in degree and then you have the andrew that is on our in our scripts by tom rob smith in a world that's created by ryan murphy and at the end of the day that's sort of my master and commander as an actor that's kind of my job i mean there were there were things in the script that after i'd created my own opinions about andrew i would go i don't i don't know if it that's something that andrew might have said or done but i don't know but that's not my job that's not that's not that's irrelevant i go okay well that's the story that's the engine that we're serving here i i look at um acting and um i mean it's a team sport you know i'm, I'm a soldier and a part of a you know platoon and so you know when you're when you're commanding officers like this is what we're doing you go okay cool how can we make this work how can we um you know and it's not like i'm going there kicking and screaming really thinking this is not what we think we should be doing but just little, little things here and there we go okay cool i guess i guess we're going to use a little more blue than red but okay cool let's let's do that and see how we can base that in some place of accessibility and, and reality and um yeah i think there's only so much you can go with andrew because you're mentioning how some people say they don't want it to be an imitation you know i wasn't playing oj simpson i'm right. not playing a person who has a, as an overwhelming amount of uh, stuff to watch and like it, it was for it, it's incredible there's nobody could find anything on video with yeah. andrew and the crazy thing about it is it's like i feel like that really highlights the you know 20 plus year remove where it's like that now there's fucking video of everybody every you know like right. photos everywhere you know i do a google image search for QN and it's like the same two photos the same yeah you know? exactly yeah. or maybe a handful of 10 and every now and then i watch like deep clips that like aren't released where they have like family photos and I get surprised by those because they've really dug those up. There's no video footage. And, um, and in a way that sort of, uh, releases me from that fear of like, Oh my God, I have to have my, there's a, I'm really concerned with physical and voice work. That's something that I, I belabor maybe a little too much. Um, maybe just as like a physical actor nerd and a physical theater, uh, nerd. Um, but I, yeah, as far as speaking voice and physical things, I can only get from things that I'd heard from people and from Maureen's book, like, you know, the book is highlighted to hell with all kinds of like little things that circle other things, but they're all kind of contradictory. So you don't really know what, you know, you know, if you played up a certain level of flamboyance with a certain group of people, because that may have, 
made him stand out more, may have elevated his status or were places where he would have suppressed that. And it was really hard to map that in certain scenes. And I, even when I watched the show, I go, Oh God, I don't know if I, if that was, maybe I should have put that there. I mean, it's, it's really hard to map out, but the thing that frees me again is, well, there's no, there's no comparison point. We don't, we don't, we don't know. And that is, and it really is unimportant. I think as long as you're servicing the moment and the dialogue in a very real way, those little actor nitpicky things of you know trying to get precise yeah. movements and voices down, are, are, I think, are are less as uh, imperative as just trying to make the the scene real in some kind of way. Yeah, and I would imagine that it's especially tricky with a character like Andrew. Um, I mean, character in terms of what Tom wrote, um, but he is a character in itself. Yeah. yeah, there's there is a theatricality to him, which again also is this nice safety net for any time I think I'm going too much or too little, or or maybe this this person is too different from that person i mean that's sort of that that it is like i said it's a safety net because you go that that is the sort of vol, um volatility of of his personality it can it's just it's all over the place so um i guess my inconsistencies i could just blame on uh, a brilliant uh, consideration of different person i don't know i mean it, it's hard to really know whatever his reality is you know yeah, i we mean don't know. He, it's always shifting and um, which is nice for the for people watching because you know the we we don't it, it, there's an objectivity people come come to it watching it uh that i think helps us ingest it a little more i think one of the unfortunate pitfalls of watching a show that depicts real life people that we're familiar with is you have your judgment dukes up pretty high. You're like, yeah. well, they don't sound like the person. They don't look anything like them. I'm like you're missing the point here. <laughs> like this right. is not, it's not, we're not doing an imitation show here. There's not a pantomime. Like we're, we're, we're playing emotions, right? Not appearances. You know, and I think it was a major, two major themes of the show are these sort of identity crises that he, it's not actively having every day maybe, but like is a, is a part of a larger thing. I mean, you know, his gay identity, his racial identity. Um, in terms of, you know, you were both half Filipino or you, you are, he was. Um, did you bring any of your own experience into that? Or did you, I mean, something we talk about, uh, we've talked about on this podcast is this idea of passing. And like, you know, because he could be like, no, I'm Italian, I'm Portuguese because, mm-hmm. he, you know, of just the way he looked or whatever. Um, like, how did, it, did that reflect anything in your own experience? Um, not directly, but I can certainly relate to that. I mean, I, I think uh, me and a lot of other uh, Caucasian Filipino halfies that I know, uh, it kind of, we can kind of pass as a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, somebody asked me recently, and I was really fascinated because I, I, in my entire career thus far, I'd never been asked this, and it really gave me pause. They asked me if I considered myself a person of color, and I said, hmm, I don't, I don't think so, but I think that um, interest in the question my, and, and the, the pause that it gave me kind of gave me the answer, which is no, in that I haven't had to deal with the, um, it's, to be honest, whatever obstacles those may present in the entertainment industry, you know, uh, a lot of people of color that are put into certain boxes for better or for worse. Um, that's something that you really have to to live with. And uh, because I pass for so many different things and I look just like a plain old white dude, Caucasian guy, um, it's never really occurred to me on paper. Yeah, I guess, I guess I am. And yes, I grew up with a, in a Filipino like household. Right. Um, but I never really thought of it that way. And um, maybe because he also kind of looked just like a lot of things he said, I'm Israeli, I'm Italian. It kind of looks Mediterranean. And he was Italian. I mean, his mother was Italian. Um, you know, maybe he felt the same way where he, he, he didn't want to celebrate this part of his life that maybe he didn't 
like talking about, but I do know that he did talk about being Filipino where it was convenient. Like sure. he did many of his many many places in his life, and I think when he was saying that he was Jewish or Italian or French or whatever, like that would, you know, that would be only for the circles where that would also be, you know, um, uh, advantageous. But uh, I guess I guess really no, I haven't. The most I've ever thought about it has been doing the press tour right. for this, um, and it's it's a really interesting thing to think about. But uh, um, you know, I, I can't say there's been a lack of half Filipino roles. It's just a very specific, unique, right. you know, uh, type of person that, uh, I think is just sheer, sheer providence yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, Ryan happened to be doing a project and I'm involved with Ryan's, you know, uh, company of players and that I happen to be around the same age. I mean, it's all, there's, so a, he just approached you directly and was like, I want you for this or. Yeah. We, t- so it was about three years ago, um, where I was, they had just announced American Crime Story with Lady Gaga, and I jokingly mentioned to him because I had like my fifteen minutes with Ryan. We had lunch. We were in New Orleans, and uh, and uh, I just jokingly said, "Hey, let me know if you need a." I said this exactly. Let me know if you need like a Wiley bellhop <laughs> to to hang out around <laughs> right. your American Horror Story hotel. Uh, and he said, "No, but I'm I'm starting this uh, Amer- um, this crime anthology similar to the anthology we're doing with Horror Story, and we're starting with the OJ trial." But he said from that, because it's amazing how, because, you know, this was before the show had even been in pre-production or anybody had been cast. It was just this thing that he talked about, which is funny considering how successful it was. Um, and uh, he said, you know, there's, everybody knows the OG trial and it's sort of a, a boiler room court drama. Whereas the next season I want to do something that's more sweeping and more of a manhunt and a character piece. Um, which, you know, in retrospect, you know, it's, it's a really cool um juxtaposition to the first season of the show it's something that i've really enjoyed watching totally objective from my involvement in it and um yeah that was it and and he said how much do you know about andrew kunan and i said nothing and i looked him up I'm like oh this guy I, right and that, and that was really it and i just said oh he's half filipino and i just remember thinking like ryan like i don't know if you're playing if you had anybody else in mind but uh and i'm sure if anyone's listening i'm sure there's a ton of other half filipino actors out there that are around the age that i am and have a likeness to andrew kunanen but on that day i was like brian i i dare you to find someone else man uh let me know and so i i was very very interested because the character is so interesting um and and like i said earlier it's it, it just blows your mind there's so much to it that it's getting to um really explore somebody like him is something that actors wake up for in the morning you know yeah. so in those er- around for it and here we are in those early conversations or maybe during produ- uh, production uh, was there anything i mean I, I guess tom's scripts were what they were but like was there anything that you guys were or you personally were there any like third rails you were scared to touch or like you know things you had to talk out like we don't we don't want to get this wrong or we don't want to be problematic i mean was that- there's I, I had a lot of concerns yeah. and at the end of the day uh when you get there and you're doing the scene you go this isn't really an issue i i had a few things one is and you actually mentioned this on the show in the first one i, I was oh, i've been looking forward to talking about this um because of the time jumping i was really worried about his weight and i was really worried about oh, yeah. um the the level of emaciation versus the weight that he had gained and um you know this isn't like a movie where we have time to map this out. We're like, we have one day we're in 1994 and one, and the, literally the next day we're 97 in, in, in Miami. And I was like, well, you know, he was towards the end. He had gained a lot of weight, but then he also lost a lot of weight when he was on the lamb. And I, I really kind of want this very easily distinguishable physical discrepancy between where he ended up and this sort of young, handsome, fit young man 
And uh, given the schedule, I, I it was like a real concern. I was like, I don't know what we're gonna do. Like, we're gonna do like a fat suit. Like, it's, and then it wasn't that he was fat. He was just like, yeah, out of shape. He just let himself go. And like people who knew him towards the end were like, oh yeah, he really was like, he was losing it, um, which was indicative of a lot other, of a lot of other problems and things that would really hit service our story. And um, he was uh, him and Tom and me were just like, there's it's it's just one of those things that we're just gonna have to, yeah suspension of, of, of belief because it just play the scenes, you know, play the, play the emotions. Cause it's something that technically you just, you just couldn't pull off. But yeah. I remember thinking like, I remember being like on the beach towards the end, like during the opening scene where <laughs> I was like in pretty good shape. <laughs> I mean, these are like champagne problems, knock on wood. But I just remember going, God, like this is like, he did not, it, this is, he, Andrew looks too put together right, right. now. Yeah, he was like a mess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you play that more emotionally, right. and and I think that's just me again, actor nitpicking. But that was one concern. Another thing was because we don't have an Andrew that we can base like one Andrew on. I was concerned, and this is a much larger thing that that is another delicate subject, which is which bears talking about it if you want to unpack it, but. Again, being the straight actor playing a queer character, yeah, you know how. What are the dials that were yeah. that we're portraying here? And again, the the safety net that I keep mentioning. There's different levels of, let's be honest, stereotypes that you can that you can ride a, a much larger wave on in certain situations. Some not. I was careful with this with Ryan and Tom. I was. I just wanted them. I was like, let me know. Also, his voice, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people, there's, there's been sighting of him having this high-pitched laugh and a much more feminine voice, but then there's people that said it wasn't like that at all, which leads me to believe that, again, he was putting on these different personas. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I was very much concerned with the degrees of caricature. And actually, you know what? I think I take that back. I think it was maybe less about about the gay stereotypes as was just just the levels of of different caricature yeah uh um likenesses and that was a concern to me because i didn't want to look cartoonish and i didn't uh you know i you never do want to look like that in any situation but the fact that it has to do with the homosexual portrayal you do worry about it because you go well this could this there's a backlash to this and obviously as a straight character you as a straight person you don't want to you know, yeah. you, you don't want to leave any room for shots to be fired. And it's something that, I, you know, is 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 obviously very important to me. And uh, yeah, so I, I had my concerns going in. But at the end of the day, they show up and they go, just play the scene, man. Yeah. <laughs> just play what would Andrew do in this moment? And then they edit it together and then you go, okay, well, it's, it's fine. So I'd, I'd be curious to see if like me saying this to you as, an, as a viewer, I'm assuming, or maybe I'm wrong, that you probably don't even think twice about it. Or maybe you do. I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, as a viewer, as a gay person, like when I heard the show was coming out and I heard you were going to be in it and I was like, oh, I mean, he's good. And, you know, that's good casting. But like, you know, you always just worry anytime a straight actor is cast as a gay person, you're like, but I think that what makes this show work as well as it does is, I mean, is your performance, but also and Cody's and whoever else, uh, uh, certainly um, Finn, um, is... You know, because there were a lot of friends of mine, colleagues who who were gay, who were like, "Oh, like, why does it have to be like gay serial killer show or spree killer show? Like, why can't it be something else?" You know, and I and I understand what they mean, but I think that the show locates a lot of pain and struggle that does still exist in the gay community. You know, internally, externally, as a community, Um, and so I think as long as that is pitched right, 
it doesn't really matter who's playing the actor, you know, who's playing the characters. Sure. Um, and I think that that carries through on the show, you know, because I think that like it's it's pretty interesting watching a nine ep- or I've seen eight, you know, eight episodes of a show that really is just head on dealing with like gay shit every you know, yeah, like it's a every lot of gay week, shit. and, and, I think and that's it's also fascinating. stuff that. Um, like you said, you know, or like the concern of your friends that are like, oh, why does it have to be a gay serial killer? I mean, A, this happened. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't some sort of like... Uh, um, it's not Buffalo Bill yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is not some crazy fictional thing that's sort of capitalizing on a gay narrative to make it interesting or sexual or perverse in some kind of way. Um, a, it happened. <laughs> B, um, it... it these things happen because they're directly connected to a lot of things that have to do with a lot of deep seated, um, issues and obstacles that exist within the gay community. And, uh, and those were, and that's what makes these things so interesting. I think we were talking earlier about identities and, and passing and something that I've, that really blew my mind was when you think about, first of all, it was 20 years ago. So you could get away with, with passing as all these different identities cause no one's looking you up on the internet and you can, right. it's totally fine. Um, it's not fine, but certainly a lot more permissible, um, and easy to pull off. Uh, but something that really got me thinking was this idea. And, and again, this is take with a grain of salt as the straight man observing this, but something that one notices about particularly the gay community or young people coming out is that there is a real sense of community built around, uh, identities changing. Um, mm-hmm. there's a real embrace that happens with that, uh, because a large part of the gay identity is about, uh, re-identifying yourself and coming to terms with who you are and sharing that person so much so that m- different identities are almost left-handedly encouraged, which is to say, if you were a certain type of person in high school, oh my God, I used to be so this or so that, you know, I didn't come out till college and that's when I really blah, blah, blah. People in the gay community say, oh yes, that, of course, that uh, I was the same way. Mm-hmm. Much like same, same thing in any in, in heteroculture, any, any non-queer culture, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Everybody has different identities, but it's, it's much more ingrained as an understood journey through um and in a point of connection between the gay community so when you deal with and this is where it gets really crazy when you start dealing with a city like san diego in the mid 90s where you have this so many dichotomies just piled on top of each other and maureen actually does a really good job of um, articulating this uh where you have military Mm -hmm. uh you have you have a conservative city in a military town with a lot of money but you also have this burgeoning uh, gay young progressive community right on top of it. And so you have people like Jeffrey trail, who's kind of at the crossroads of both. Yeah. Um, you have somebody like Andrew who comes to this area and this is every, like this is his people. He has all sides wanting to be different identities and he finds himself in the middle of it. So him saying to young men in gay bars in, in Hillcrest, like I'm this person, I'm this person, you know, men who are also hiding certain things about themselves go, Oh, like I love this guy. This guy's amazing. And even if they think he's lying, they go, I totally relate to that. And so this behavior kind of gets encouraged in, in a sort of unfortunate way, uh, to where when people say things like, Oh, he was, manipulative and a liar you go but this is also an extension of a survival instinct that has very much to do with a young gay man trying to navigate his identity in a multiple identity culture so there's there's a lot 
that uh, is in our in the backstory of our of our drama yeah. that supports these things unknowingly, which is the great thing about American Crime Story as as a show because it's not just about Andrew and about the the victims of the murder. It really explores the social landscape and how those things affected the crime and how the crime affected the landscape. And yeah, I mean, American is not in the title by accident, you know? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And that is a very American story. I mean, gays in the military, that's something that we've been talking about for the past 20 years and, and still has its ups and downs. And so it, and it directly affects our story. It's not like this interesting little sidebar. It's like, no, this is very much connected to how these, anyway. I mean, no, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's true. Like I, you could think of Andrew almost as, um, you know, like uh, cancer is just your cells multiplying too much, you know, or whatever. Like it's, it's, and so he kind of is the one that just like took all of this too far, this kind of code switching and identity crisis. And he just like, he just kind of spun out and, and he wasn't really, like you said, like he was doing a more extreme version of a thing that a lot of people right. where he was from were doing. Sure. Yeah and, yeah. and I think that that's, I think that's what, to my mind, what differentiates him. I, I don't really see him like in terms of having the pathology of a serial killer. It feels like his, his murders were more out of utility in a way. Sure. Yeah, you know, that's a great way. So of I think it. I don't know. I think I think in a in a I mean he still did terrible things, but I think that humanizes him more. Sure. Maybe. Um, but, so I'm curious. Like you know, you have a pretty active fan base. I don't know if you're familiar uh, that every time very lucky. you uh if you tweet your name, if I tweet your name, I'll get you know just a million people <laughs> favoriting. Um, what have you heard from fans about this show? Like, what has surprised you? What has, you know, um, what's been the kind of... I mean, because I would imagine that you have a lot of young fans, but you probably also have a lot of fans kind of, you know, my age, late 20s, early 30s. Like, what's the range been? I mean... I don't know. I think what's been really exciting about this show is that the topic and the exposure that this show has attracts a certain amount of people that I'm really interested in talking to anyway. Yeah. Uh about subjects that I would love to talk about. So um, it's nice, I mean, not to throw glee under the bus, but obviously that, that attracts a very different conversation. Um, there are some similarities, but the, the gravitas is different. And um, so it's been exciting to, uh, I guess, meet new folks that I, that wouldn't have necess- I wouldn't have necessarily pinned as, as being a fan from anything else. Uh, I won't say what party I was at, but... Uh, maybe because it's not Condé Nast, doesn't matter, who cares? <laughs> uh, but I was at, um, you know, one of these events where there's a lot of people that I admire, a lot of writers I admire, um, who don't know that I know who they are. <laughs> right. Um, I would have only been able to pin you because you said you you were you were Richard. I was like, oh my god! Yeah. Like, I, I there's stuff that I sort of low key follow, and um, there's certain folks that uh, would never have talked to me before this show and not in a bad way just yeah. like you know it's it's fine um maybe glee wasn't their thing and it's cool being able to meet these folks and they come up to me and and want to talk and um and it's not annoying I, I i really do enjoy having a discourse about this uh so i guess this uh, it's not really answer your question because i'm talking about the people who aren't the sort of no. stereotypical fans I, I i really have enjoyed uh, getting to know new groups of people that um, were may- or maybe a different shade of, of person, whatever that yeah. means. I mean, does doing that kind of, I mean, y- y- what you're saying essentially is that you've kind of recontextualized yourself as an actor. Like now this kind of different set of people is sort of paying attention to the work or coming up to you at sure. a party or whatever. I mean, a lot of those people didn't know me until this show, right. which is very interesting to me. Right. 
do, so do, does it does it feel like I mean speaking about you know identities and all that does it feel like you're adding or do you ever feel like when you make a shift like that that you're kind of losing the thing you were before does that make sense no it's all addition yeah, yeah. yeah i would never say that i'm losing anything i would be really sad to lose i mean there's i would say there's a certain amount of people that i see after every show that i've seen for the past eight years maybe more even before glee i mean there's been a lot of a lot of the fans that have been with me for so long i think stick around because they have this sort of currency of like no we were here first right um and so i see a lot of them and i'm always very happy to see them and i always go there's going to be a day where i come to the stage door and they're not going to be there <laughs> so um so i certainly hope that i don't lose those folks um this is a sidebar about uh, observation which is more less to do with our show more to do with the sort of uh, current uh, culture uh, fan fan culture landscape is that the sort of beginning of my at least public career started right at the advent of social media mm-hmm. um just sort of same thing as glee i mean it it was this really interesting kaboom and this renaissance of this new way that culture interacted with consumer and that was right at the nexus of my beginning uh, I shouldn't say nexus, I said genesis. I've said both those words twice. I'm sure my vocab <laughs> teacher would be very proud from from grade school. Um, and uh, so as a result, they get to see firsthand the evolution of stuff. The the, the veil is lifted. They, they can see the very big things, the very small things, and they feel really connected to this journey of this kid out of college sort of navigating his his career in Hollywood and, and, and so forth. So... Um, that's a different kind of fan that is a that is a fan of uh life narratives right. rather than individual work i don't know why i'm yeah. saying this no i mean it makes sense because i mean like i, I guess something i was going to ask you was like in, in that same vein was like was there ever any fear about doing a role like this that you would alienate people no 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 way oh my god this is the kind of thing that i've all actors would wait their entire life for yeah um i have waited and worked for this moment my entire life yeah uh being on this podcast this this moment right here (laughs) great after this it's all over (laughs) no but that but this opportunity to be on 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 this show um it's just it's it's everything that and it's weird obviously because it's it's a it's a very uh unfortunate tale and in a very twisted mind-blowing way you go okay well would would i be able to say this if these horrible tragedies hadn't happened Right. So yeah. that's a weird, weird thing. One of my best friends, this guy has a, he's a tattoo of John Lennon. Okay. okay. Uh, because had John Lennon not been shot, he wouldn't have been born <laughs> because his mom met his biological father on the plane ride to his vigil. So you think like, Oh my God. Oh, weird. Isn't that wild? Right. That's, that's, you should write that movie yeah. and be in that and movie. He, and and he's like, and he's like, that's yeah. not even me being like poetic or romantic. It's, like it's just straight up fact. If he had not died, I would not have been born. It's like butterfly flaps its wing in Thailand and it exactly. rains in New York or whatever. That's, exactly. So that, yeah. so similarly, a similar thing. I'm like, yeah. God, I would never, if, if I was in any position to stop any of this, obviously I, I would have done something or so I would think we all would have, if we were in any position to be around it, to, to prevent yeah. but we weren't and it happened. And so here I am. But, um, that aside, yeah, this has been an extraordinary opportunity that, uh, that it's, it, 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 it I, I can't wrap my brain around it for as m- many words as I have about stuff. I just can't believe that the timing of this and everything and the, the quality of the work it's, and it's not about me. It's like, you know, having a job is exciting enough. Having, having one that is as, um, invigorating, uh, uh, 
process wise as, as somebody like Andrew and working with the people that the caliber of people we get to work with. And then on top of that, having it actually be something that people are talking about and that has exposure. I mean, so many times you might have a great role or a great project, but nobody sees it. And so like if, you know, a tree falls in the forest and no one's wanting it, like, yeah. so, um, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, it, <laughs> I'm so pleased. And karmically, if everything crashed and burned after this, it, it'd sort of be fair <laughs> much to my chagrin it would be fair well I think that you know the important thing about you know the, you, it's just a tragic story but it is a good opportunity for you but I think the important thing to do that is then honor it properly and I think you guys do yeah um, and also it's not know. I'm not saying this I'm for fear of sounding like a total egotist like it's not I'm not like yeah, yeah, yeah I get to do something for me it really is like it's a, it's a fucking great story like yeah take the tragedy out of it like the rules of drama and the rules of character and the complexities of human nature things the reason why we tell stories in the first place i mean it's just chock full of so much of that that um yeah at least you're like thank god it's at least something of of value and uh the discussions that people have and thank god that it's a weekly thing and not something people can clear through for a weekend yeah that's because very it true can, it yeah. sort of sustains this exposure yeah. and discourse that as you said sort of each you know each one has its different sort of like one act uh sort of theme and yeah. uh it everybody can really ingest it every week which makes it very exciting for me um because uh even though I'd seen a lot of them on like screeners, it doesn't become real until other people experience no, it. Yeah. So when you, when I have conversations like this, you go, Oh yeah, it is, is real. Cause we're not, you're not having this kind of conversation on set. You're worrying about no, where your mark not. is and what the right. camera angle is and you know, what, and all of that kind of stuff. You have to take a step back and, and yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. See it. Cause it doesn't belong to you. It's like, if I write a song, like I have my own feelings about it, but if somebody else hears it now, now it's out. Now right. it belongs to, you know, other people. You had mentioned, um, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about, but um, stuff that was cut that you shot. Oh, that's like, exactly yeah. what I wanted what, to talk about. What What was that stuff? Well, there's so much. And um, I'd be curious to know if they ever do a director's cut thing. Uh, and I think it's safe to talk about because I'm not like giving anything away. Uh, it, there's, there's literal stuff that was in the scripts that we shot that didn't make it into the final cut. But then there's also, you have to understand that for every take, I'm really fastidious about... I'm like a highly technical actor. So per each take, I'm do, I'm giving like a five, a 10 and a 12. And mm -hmm. I'm like going all over the place. And I say, you know, I don't know how you're going to cut this out. I don't know what your pacing is going to be. I don't know what music cues you're going to use. So I don't know which one you're going to use. I have my favorites, obviously. Mm -hmm. where I go, I really think that it should be here. Not up to me. Use what you got to use. But I, I like leaving set going, okay, I did as much as I possibly could have. So watching the episode last night i mean all i could all i see are like you know continuity screw-ups or things that i'm like oh they use that take like right i don't know if i want to use that one and and knowing that i had did another thing that would have been more interesting but that's not up to me and i'm not saying it turned out bad but when i'm when i'm remember this way if i'm if i'm formulating a performance there's a b and c right mm -hmm. so so c happens because of b b happens because of a if i'm watching an episode and b is missing Right. Then suddenly C becomes B. Right. And so what you're watching, the, the, the viewer just doesn't even think about it. It just is what it is. So it's not, it doesn't mean anything because you don't know the difference, but I do. Right. And so that kind of draws, drives me a little nuts sometimes where there's moments on my huge CSI board of like character arcs over nine episodes, which is already a pain in the ass because it's going backwards. You know, I have my little big red pins of like, this is a really important emotional moment. This is a really important moment. And like two of those are missing. And oh. I go, oh, 
Like now this thing doesn't connect as well, but of course it does because you you don't know about it. But at least for me, selfishly, this is all actor vanity. It's, no, it's I mean it's bullshit. writer vanity too. I agonize over cutting paragraphs, and then when it goes up, no one notices. No, the paragraphs notices gone. It, but you know, oh, I know, I still and know it, every single one. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's yeah. a little annoying. I mean, and there's things also uh, if you really want to go into like stupid vanity, there are, there are performances that I was like, oh man. I really hope they use that because that was, I really, like, that was a lot. I really went to a certain place that it would be nice to validate it with, with it being used in a, in right. a useful way. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's gone. You're like, God damn it. <laughs> um, but let me see. I had, like, there, there are some narrative things that um, that I should mention. I think Vanity Fair is a good place to to to, to ex- be the exclusive uh, purveyor of truth on this. Um, I don't know what's going to be in the last episode, but... Dasha, which who people know from Orange is the New Black, um, was one of the investigators in Miami with Will, and they were they had this sort of uh, their their cop drama was was interesting to me because Will was the voice of the, I guess the sort of hardened straight bro who's not necessarily homophobic, but you know just doesn't really get it, and it, he was a really interesting um, juxtaposition against Dasha, whose character was an was a gay cop. She, oh, she had this whole thing of being this, you know, lesbian investigator that understood what was going on a little more. And I think they have cut things because it, it, you kind of get it in, in, in the small piece where they were. I think they tell that story in a very subtle way. And maybe it would have been hitting the nail too hard in the head. Um, but I really enjoyed it because it kind of explored this thing where she, you know, they, they kind of paint it where she's the one that does the photocopies of the flyers, but there was a lot more stuff where, and selfishly, I was looking forward to seeing this stuff because I wasn't there when they were shooting it. So when I read it, I go, oh, I can't wait yeah. to watch this. These scenes where she was going to the gay clubs and she was really kind of connecting the dots and had to kind of figure this out. Just her as a prominent character was really interesting to me. Um, again, they they sort of economized and, and did what they had to do and you mm-hmm. kind of get glimpses of that. You can One can surmise that relationship between the two of them just within the small amount of things that you see. But there's huge sequences that we shot, like huge parties and a lot of people that took a long time that are just, are just gone. And I do you see why they're, go- I mean, do you understand why they're out? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I can see why. Um, but you know, when you put a full day into something and you go, okay, this is a big moment and then it's gone, you can't help but go, Oh, that really, that really, there's one scene in particular that I don't know if I should talk about because I don't, I don't want to like, I mean, I don't, I don't know why it would get me in trouble. It's not in there, but there was a, a scene that I really liked that I actually asked Ryan about it, and he said that the tone was wrong. And if you say that from, you're like, fine, like Ryan, yeah. you're, the, you're the, you're the boss, like totally, like you are the master of like tone here. <laughs> so I, I, I trust your instinct. There was this really interesting scene in the second episode where he's already, he's, he's on the lamb. He hasn't, he hasn't killed Johnny yet, but, but Andrew goes into, and this happened apparently he, um, he goes into a like a small boutique like porn studio like Mm -hmm. a gay porn studio looking for work and it's really pathetic because and this was another problem that i had i was like well he he should have been a little chunkier at this time right and he comes in he's looking for a job and shout out to skeet ulrich who got cut out of it It was wonderful i really really enjoyed his performance he was really great he played this sort of um god this sort of like porn Zigfield guy <laughs> producer right, dude right. you know the cigarettes sort of like skeezy dude and uh 
Andrew's, Andrew says, you know, I'm looking for work. And he says, what is like a PA? What do you want to do around here? And he's like, no, I want to, I'd like to be one of the, like total straight face. Like, no, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be one of the actors. And this sort of hyper delusion of right. disassociating himself from the truth at, and sort of at the end of his rope too, which also kind of feeds into this desperation. And there was a lot of really interesting things going on there. And Skeet's character just being like, what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? Right. Are you fucking out of your mind? And he like, and he shows him the guys and this huge bulky beefcakey roided out dudes. Like, do you see like what? And it's, it was great because it was the first time that, you know, Andrew hits this wall against somebody who doesn't fall for his bullshit that is literally just snapping his fingers in his face. I mean, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? Yeah. Like, this is what we're looking for. Like, like, like laughing in his face. And then Andrew goes fucking bizarre. I actually cut my hand. I had to get like, I had to go, <laughs> go to the nurse. Um, he like throws over the crafty table and he has this really great little monologue. And again, this isn't because like, oh, I got to throw stuff and be an actor. It was more just because I really like this moment, but they paint it in other ways in other parts of the yeah. series and maybe arguably it contained things a little more. But he gives this monologue that I enjoyed and I forget most of it. But one of the lines that I liked was he he he, he throws all the shit everywhere and, and Skeet Ulrich is like, there's just silence. And then Andrew says this thing where he says, I have been desired my entire life. Wow. By by older men, younger men, straight men. You have no idea. You like you don't know me. You know nothing about desire. And just the oh, I get yeah. goosebumps even talking about it because when you go backwards you realize that this that desire already had its own set of issues. But yeah. him using that as social currency of like just just lording that over this guy who is just giving him a real healthy dose of reality and Andrew being completely unable to, to compute that. Like you, you don't fucking get it. Like I am the one here that is important and I am the, like these beefcakey guys, like they are nothing. I am a fucking God. And how do you not get this? And you're seeing this pathetic dude that's like right. on his like at his wits end saying this. It's just broke my heart in a million little pieces. So that was like a huge red pin in that little sure. board. And yeah. so when that was gone, I was like, no. <laughs> but again, those things kind of rear their heads in other places. And yeah. I, if you want to see a lot of cut scenes, they always end up in the promos. They, oh, really? All the promos have these things where I'm like, oh, I guess they're using that. And I watched the episode and they're not there. So I'd be curious to see the director's cut because a lot of episodes ended up at like, 90 100 minutes and they have to cut them down right. to 40 or whatever it is the last one i'll say which i know is not in there and i saw it in the promo this week and i went oh, that's not in there my publicist is looking at me being like can't say it. but it doesn't matter it's not in there it doesn't give anything away if anything it helps like this is what we were dealing with um it, it may end up in the tv edit i don't know but there's a thing where andrew does like a fake phone call do you remember this does it end up in the show no it doesn't say it's in this promo you can watch it um yeah, there's like the, all all these lines that aren't in the show. Um, there's one that I've seen a lot that isn't in the show where we see him in his classroom, like reading, like 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 quoting. Oh, interesting. Quoting yeah. poetry or quoting a philosopher. That's not in there. That was a whole scene. Um, this is the last I'll say of it. He has this fake call with David Madsen, where I think it's after their weekend, or I forget what the chronology of it is. But he basically, you see him on the phone with the phone on his head, and he's saying. David, I'm not the person that I said I was. And there's this real brutal, vulnerable moment of, of honesty, of like unadulterated honesty that as a, as a viewer, you're like, oh, finally. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Oh, great. What a relief. And then, yeah, what a relief. And then 
and then you see him kind of, it's like pep talking himself into doing this. Oh, wow. And then it's not real. And then he finally calls David and he just says like, hi, I had a, I had a great time. Right. Bye. And that's it. Oh, and, you're that's like, and you're like, no, <laughs> it, it's all those moments where you yeah. go, God damn it. No, yeah. man, you, you really, you were so close. Yeah. Um, so those are two little spoilers for Vanity Fair, which I well, feel is a do. A thank do you for that. Credit. Yes. Of course. Uh, maybe on the DVD extras. You know, what does show up on the screen or in the episodes is great. And we're thank so you. happy that you could come in and talk to us, Darren. Thank you so much. Thank you for having this me. I'm great. sorry that I couldn't I couldn't be here with, uh, with Joanne. Well, next time. Next time you play some sort of spree killer, <laughs> yeah. we'll do a podcast about that. That was so good. Thank you so much, Richard, for putting that together. We The conversation actually was a little longer than what you just heard. We have a few other exclusives from Darren that will go in our next two podcasts, bringing us through the end of the season. So you'll hear more from Darren next week as we discuss the episode Creator Destroyer. But until then, Richard, where can people find you on Twitter? Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And I am at Joe Wrote This. And this episode was engineered by Daniel Roth and produced by Dave Gonzalez. And until Creator Destroyer, we'll see you next time. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.